Section 10 of Heart A Schoolboy's Journal This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Lewis, Houston, Texas. Heart A Schoolboy's Journal by Edmondo Diamichis. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. February. A medal well bestowed. Saturday, the 4th. This morning, the superintendent of the schools, a gentleman with a white beard and dressed in black, came to present the medals. He came in with the principal a little before the close and seated himself beside the teacher. He questioned a few, then gave the first medal to Darasi, and before giving the second, he stood for a few moments, listening to the teacher and the principal, who were talking to him in a low voice. All were asking themselves, to whom will he give the second? The superintendent said aloud, Pupil Pedro Procasi has merited the second medal this week, merited it by his work at home, by his lessons, by his handwriting, by his conduct in every way. All turned to look at Prakasi and seemed pleased. Prakasi rose in such confusion that he did not know where he was. Come here, said the superintendent. Prakasi sprang up from his seat and went to the master's table. The superintendent looked attentively at the little waxen face, at the puny body enveloped in turned and ill-fitting garments, at the kind, sad eyes which avoided his, but which hinted at a story of suffering. Then he said to him, in a voice full of affection, as he fastened the medal on his shoulder, I give you the medal, Prakasi. No one is more worthy to wear it than you. I bestow it not only on your intelligence and your goodwill. I bestow it on your heart. I give it to your courage, to your character of a brave and good son. Is it not true, he added, turning to the class, that he deserves it also on that score? Yes, yes, all answered, with one voice. Prakasi made a movement of the throat as though he were swallowing something, and cast upon the benches a very sweet look which bespoke his immense gratitude. Go, my dear boy, said the superintendent, and may God protect you. It was the hour for dismissing the school. Our class got out before the others. As soon as we were outside the door, whom should we espy there in the large hall just at the entrance? The father of Prakasi, the blacksmith. Pale as usual, with fierce face, hair hanging over his eyes, his cap awry and unsteady on his legs. The teacher caught sight of him instantly and whispered to the superintendent. The latter sought out Prakasi in haste, and taking him by the hand, he led him to his father. The boy was trembling. He and the superintendent approached. Several of the boys collected around them. Is it true that you are the father of this lad? asked the superintendent of the blacksmith with a cheerful air, as though they were friends, and without awaiting a reply, I rejoice with you. Look, he has won the second medal over fifty-four of his comrades. He has deserved it by his composition, his arithmetic, everything. He is a boy of great intelligence and good will, who will accomplish great things, a noble lad who has gained the friendship and esteem of all. You may feel proud of him, I assure you. 
The blacksmith, who had stood there with open mouth listening to him, stared at the superintendent and the principal, and then at his son, who was standing before him with downcast eyes and trembling. And as though he had remembered and comprehended then, for the first time, all that he had made the little boy suffer, and all the goodness, the heroic constancy, with which the latter had borne it, his face took on a certain stupid wonder, then a sullen remorse, and finally a sad, fierce tenderness. And with a quick movement he caught the boy round the head and strained him to his breast. We went out ahead of them. I invited him to come to the house on Thursday with Coroni and Crassi. Others bowed to him. One gave him a friendly pat. Another touched his medal. All said something to him and his father stared at us in amazement as he still had his son's head pressed to his breast while the boy sobbed. Good Resolutions, Sunday the 5th. The medal given to Procasi had awakened a regret in me. I have never earned one yet. For some time past, I have not been studying, and I am discontented with myself. And the teacher and my father and mother are discontented with me. I no longer take delight in amusing myself as I did formerly, when I worked with the will and then sprang up from the table and ran to my games full of joy, as though I had not played for a month. Neither do I sit down to the table with my family with the same contentment as of old. I have always a shadow in my soul, an inward voice that says to me continually, It won't do. It won't do. In the evening, a great many boys passed through the square on the return from work. In the midst of the group of working men, weary but merry, they step briskly along, impatient to reach their homes and suppers. And they talk loudly, laughing and slapping each other on the shoulder with hands blackened with coal or whitened with plaster. And I reflect that they have been working since daybreak up to this hour. And with them are also many others who are still smaller, who have been standing all day on the summits of roofs, in front of ovens, among machines, and in the water, and underground, with nothing to eat but a little bread. And I feel almost ashamed that I, in all that time, have accomplished nothing but scribble four small pages, and that reluctantly. Ah, I am discontented, discontented. I see plainly that my father is out of humor and would like to tell me so. But he is sorry, and he is still waiting. My dear father, who works so hard, all is yours, all that I see around me in the house, all that I touch, all that I wear and eat, all that teaches me or amuses me, all is the fruit of your toil, and I do not work. All has cost you thought, privations, trouble, effort, and I make no effort. Ah, no, this is too unjust, and it causes me too much pain. I will begin this very day. I will apply myself to my studies. Like Stardye, with clenched fist and set teeth, I will set about it with all the strength of my will and my heart. I will conquer my drowsiness in the evening. I will come down promptly in the morning. I will cudgel my brains without ceasing. I will punish my laziness without mercy. I will toil, suffer, even to the extent of making myself ill. But I will put a stop once for all to this aimless life, 
which is degrading me and causing sorrow to others. Courage to work, to work with all my soul and all my nerves, to work which will restore to me sweet rest, pleasing games, cheerful meals, to work which will give me back again the kindly smile of my teacher, the blessed kiss of my father. The Train of Cars, Friday the 10th. Fercasi came to our house today with Goroni. I do not think that two sons of princes would have been received with greater delight. This is the first time that Goroni had been here, because he is rather shy. And then he is ashamed to show himself because he is so large, and is still in the third grade. We all went to open the door when they rang. Crossy did not come because his father has at last arrived from America, after an absence of seven years. My mother kissed Procasi. My father introduced Goroni to her, saying, Here is a lad who is not only a good boy, he is a man of honor and a gentleman. And the boy dropped his big, shaggy head with a sly smile at me. Procasi had on his meadow, and he was happy, because his father had gone to work again and has not drunk anything for the last five days. Wants him to be always in the workshop to keep him company, and seems quite another man. We began to play, and I brought out all of my things. Prakasi was delighted with my train of cars, and the engine that goes of itself on being wound up. He had never seen anything of the kind. He devoured the little red and yellow cars with his eyes. I gave him the key, and he knelt down to play with the train, and did not so much as raise his head again. I have never seen him so happy. He kept saying, Excuse me, excuse me, and motioning to us with his hands, not to stop the engine. And then he picked it up and started the cars with as much care as though they had been made of glass. He was afraid of tarnishing them with his breath, and he polished them up again, looking them over, top and bottom, and smiling to himself. We stood around him and gazed at him. We looked at the slender neck, the poor little ears, which I had seen bleeding one day, the jacket with the sleeves turned up, and two sickly little arms, which had been upraised to ward off blows from his face. Oh, at that moment I could have cast all my playthings and all my books at his feet. I could have taken the last morsel of bread from my lips to give to him. I could have taken off my clothing to clothe him. I could have flung myself on my knees to kiss his hand. I shall at least give you the train, I thought, but at first I must ask my father. At that moment I felt a bit of paper thrust into my hand. I looked. It was written in pencil by my father. It said, Your train strikes Procasi's fancy. He has no playthings. Does your heart suggest nothing to you? Instantly I seized the engine and the cars in both hands, and I placed them in his arms, saying, Take this. It is yours. He looked at me and did not understand. It is yours, I said. I give it to you. Then he looked at my father and mother, in still greater astonishment, and asked me, But why? My father replied, Iriko gives it to you because he is your friend, because he loves you to celebrate your medal. Prakasi asked timidly, I may carry it away home? Of course, we all responded. He was already at the door, but he dared not go out. He was happy. He begged our pardon with a mouth that smiled and quivered. Goroni helped him to wrap up the train in a handkerchief, 
and as he bent over, he made the things with which his pockets were filled rattle. Pride. Some day, said Prakasi to me, you shall come to the shop to see my father at work. I will give you some nails. My mother put a little bunch of flowers into Goroni's buttonhole for him to carry to his mother in her name. Goroni said thank you in his big voice, without raising his chin from his breast, but all his kind and noble soul shone in his eyes. Pride. Saturday, Nunt. The idea of Carlo Nobis rubbing off his sleeve effectively when Procasso touches him in passing. That fellow is pride personified because his father is a rich man. But Dorosi's father is rich too. Nobis would like to have a bench to himself. He is afraid that the rest will soil it. He looks down on everyone and always has a scornful smile on his lips. Woe to him who stumbles over his foot when we go out in files two by two. For a mere trifle, he flings an insulting word in your face, or a threat to get his father to come to the school. It is true that his father did give him a good lesson when he called the little son of a charcoal man a ragamuffin. I have never seen so disagreeable a schoolboy. No one speaks to him, no one says goodbye to him when he goes out, and there is not even a dog who would prompt him when he does not know his lesson. He cannot endure anyone, and he pretends to despise Dorosi more than all, because he is the head boy, and Garoni because he is beloved by all. But Dorosi pays no attention to him when he is by, and when the boys tell Garoni that Nobis has been speaking ill of him, he says, His pride is so silly that it is not worth fighting about. But Coretti said to him one day, when Nobis was smiling disdainfully at his cat-skin cap, Go to Dorosi for a while and learn how to play the gentleman. Yesterday he complained to the teacher, because Calabrian touched his leg with his foot. The teacher asked Calabrian, Did you do it intentionally? No, sir, he replied, frankly. You are too petulant, Nobis, said the teacher. And Nobis retorted in his airy array, I shall tell my father about it. Then the teacher got angry. Your father will tell you that you are in the wrong, as he had on other occasions. And besides that, it is the teacher alone who has the right to judge and punish in school. Then he added pleasantly, Come, Nobis, change your ways. Be kind and courteous to your comrades. You see, we have here sons of working men and of gentlemen, of the rich and the poor, and all love each other and treat each other like brothers, as they are. Why do not you do like the rest? It would not cost you much to make everyone like you, and you would be so much happier yourself, too. Well, have you no reply to make me? No beast who had listened to him with his customary scornful smile answered coldly, No, sir. The Wounds of Labor Sit down, said the master to him. I am sorry for you. You are a boy without a heart. This seemed to be the end of it all. But the little mason who sits on the front bench turned his round face toward Nobis, who sits on the back bench, and made such a fine and ridiculous hare's face at him that the whole class burst into a shout of laughter. The master reproved him, but he was obliged to put his hand over his own mouth to hide a smile. And even Nobis laughed but not in a pleasant way. 
Monday, 15th. No beast can be paired off with Franti. Neither of them was affected this morning by the terrible sight which passed before our eyes. On coming out of school, I was standing with my father and looking at some big boys of the second grade who had thrown themselves on their knees and were wiping off the ice with their cloaks and caps in order to make slides more quickly. When we saw a crowd of people appear at the end of the street, walking hurriedly, all serious and seemingly terrified, and talking in low tones. In the midst of them were three policemen, and behind the policemen two men, carrying a litter. Boys hastened up from all quarters. The crowd advanced toward us. On the litter was stretched a man, pale as a corpse, with his head resting on one shoulder, and his hair tumbled and stained with blood, for he had been losing blood through the mouth and ears. And beside the litter walked a woman with a baby in her arms, who seemed crazy and who shrieked from time to time, Is he dead? Is he dead? Is he dead? Behind the woman came a boy who had a satchel under his arm and who was sobbing. What has happened? asked my father. A neighbor replied that the man was a mason who had fallen from the four-story while at work. The bearers of the litter halted for a moment. Many turned away their faces in horror. I saw the schoolmaster of the red feather supporting my mistress of the upper first, who was almost in a swoon. At the same moment I felt a touch on the elbow. It was the little mason who was ghastly white and trembling from head to foot. He was certainly thinking of his father. I was thinking of him too, and I at least am at peace in my mind while at school. I know that my father is at home, seated at his table, far removed from all danger. But how many of my companions think that their fathers are at work on the very high bridge, are close to the wheels of a machine, and that a movement, a single false step, may cost them their lives. They are like so many sons of soldiers who gave fathers in the battle. Moro Torino gazed and gazed and trembled more and more, and my father noticed it and said, Go home, my boy. Go at once to your father, and you will find him safe and sound. Go. The little mason went off, turning around at every step, and in the meanwhile the crowd had begun to move again, and the woman to shriek in a way that rent the heart, He is dead! He is dead! He is dead! No, no, he is not dead, people on all sides said to her. But she paid no heed to them and tore her hair. Then I heard an indignant voice say, You are laughing? And at the same moment I saw a bearded man staring in Franti's smiling face. Then the man knocked Franti's cap to the ground with his stick, saying, Uncover your head, you wicked boy, when a man wounded by labor is passing by. The crowd had already passed, and a long streak of blood was to be seen in the middle of the street. The Prisoner, Friday, 17th. Ah, this is certainly the strangest event of the whole year. Yesterday morning, my father took me to the suburbs of Moncalari to look at a villa which he thought of hiring for the coming summer. Because we shall not go to Chauri again this year, and it turned out that the person who had the keys was a teacher who acts as secretary to the owner. He showed us the house, and then he took us to his own room, where he gave us something to drink. On his table, among the glasses, there was a wooden inkstand of a conical form, 
carved in a singular manner. Noting that my father was looking at it, the teacher said, That inkstand is very precious to me, if you only knew its history, sir. And he told it. Years ago, he was a teacher at Turin, and all one winter went daily to give lessons to the prisoners in a judicial prison. He gave the lessons in the chapel of the jail, which is a circular building, and all around it, on the high bare walls, are a great many little square windows, covered with two crossbars of iron, each one of which corresponds to a small cell inside. He gave his lessons, as he paced about the dark, cold chapel, and his scholars stood at the holes with their copy-books resting against the gratings, showing nothing in the shadow but wan, frowning faces, gray and ragged beards, staring eyes of murderers and thieves. Among the rest there was one, number 78, who was more attentive than all the others, and who studied a great deal, and gazed at his teacher with eyes full of respect and gratitude. He was a young man, with a black beard, more unfortunate than wicked, a cabinet-maker who, in a fit of rage, had flung a plane at his master, who had been persecuting him for some time, and had inflicted a mortal wound on his head. For this he had been condemned to several years of imprisonment. In three months he had learned to read and write, and he read constantly, and the more he learned, the better he seemed to become and the more remorseful for his crime. One day, at the conclusion of a lesson, he made a sign to the teacher to come near to his little window, and told him that he was to leave Turin on the following day, to go and expiate his crime in the prison at Venice. As he bade him farewell, he begged in a humble and much-moved voice that he might be allowed to touch the teacher's hand. The teacher offered him his hand, and he kissed it. Then he said, thanks, thanks, and disappeared. The master drew back his hand. It was bathed with tears. After that, he did not see the man again. Six years passed. I was thinking of anything except that unfortunate man, said the teacher, when the other morning I saw a stranger come to the house, a man with a large black beard already sprinkled with gray and badly dressed, who said to me, are you the teacher so-and-so, sir? Who are you? I asked him. I am prisoner number 78, he replied. You taught me to read and write six years ago. If you recollect, you gave me your hand at the last lesson. I have now expiated my crime, and I have come to beg you to do me the favor of accepting a memento of me, a poor little thing which I made in prison. Will you accept it in memory of me, Signor Master? I stood there speechless. He thought that I did not wish to take it, and he looked at me as much to say, So six years of suffering are not sufficient to cleanse my hands? But he gazed at me with so much pain that I instantly extended my hand and took the little object. This is it? We looked closely at the inkstand. It seemed to have been carved very laboriously with the point of a nail. On its top was graven a pen lying across a copy book, and around it was written, To my teacher, a memento of number 78, six years, three, and below, in small letters, study and hope. The teacher said nothing more. We went away. 
but all the way from Montcalari to Turin I could not get that prisoner, standing at his little window, that farewell to his master, that poor inkstand made in prison, which told so much, out of my head. And I dreamed of them all night, and was still thinking of them this morning, far enough from imagining the surprise which awaited me at school. No sooner had I taken my new seat beside Darasi and written my problem in arithmetic for the monthly examination, then I told my companion the story of the prisoner in the inkstand, and how the inkstand was made, with the pen across the copybook and the inscription around it, six years. Darasi sprang up at these words and began to look first at me and then at Karasi, the son of the vegetable vendor, who sat on the bench in front, with his back turned to us, wholly absorbed on his problem. Hush, he said then, in a low voice, catching me by the arm. Don't you know that Karasi spoke to me, day before yesterday, of having caught a glimpse of an inkstand in the hands of his father, who had returned from America, a conical inkstand made by hand with a copybook and a pen. That is the one. Six years. He said that his father was in America. Instead of that, he was in prison. Karasi was a little boy at the time of the crime. He does not remember it. His mother has deceived him. He knows nothing. Let not a syllable of this escape. I remained speechless with my eyes fixed on Karasi. Then Darasi solved his problem and passed it under the bench to Karasi. He gave him a sheet of paper. The boy had walked ten miles. Daddy's nurse. He took out of his hand the monthly story, Daddy's nurse, which the teacher had given him to copy out, in order that he might copy it for him. He gave him pins and stroked his shoulder and made me promise on my honor that I would say nothing to anyone. And when we left school, he said to me hastily, His father came to get him yesterday. He will be here again this morning. Do as I do. To the street, Crossy's father was there, a little to one side. A man with a black beard sprinkled with gray, badly dressed, and with a colorless, thoughtful face. Darasi shook Crossy's hand in a way to attract attention and said to him in a loud tone, Farewell, until we meet again, Karasi and passed his hand under his chin. I did the same, but as he did so, Darasi turned crimson, and so did I, and Karasi's father gazed straight at us with a kindly glance, but through it shone a look of distrust and doubt, which made our hearts grow cold. End of section 10. Recording by Kristen Lewis, Houston, Texas.